Once upon a time, there were only three television stations you had to choose from. In the 1960s, there was ABC, CBS, and NBC. I know for anyone under 30, this is unfathomable, but you would turn on the TV and you'd have three choices and that's it. No live streaming, no VCRs, nothing. In 1965, something amazing happened. On ABC, I'm almost certain, they put on a TV Christmas special for the Charlie Brown cartoon series. So does everyone know, even the young ones know who Charlie Brown, Snoopy, Linus, still some of my favorite characters ever. And they did a Christmas special. And in it, Charlie Brown goes around and he sees Christmas as a cultural celebration with gifts and decorations and and all of that, and everyone's all fighting and combat, you know, it's just, and, and he says, is this what Christmas is all about? And in the end, he says, can anyone tell me what Christmas is all about? And up steps Linus, the one who always carries his blanket. And, and I can't believe they aired this on live TV in, in, our, in a culture like ours. And Linus just begins reading, reciting Luke chapter 2 from the King James Version of the Bible that talks about the shepherds and the star and the baby to be born and tells the birth story of Jesus. They're on live TV. Like, that didn't happen that much in that culture or now today when, when you had only three stations. The, the, they learned later that 49% of U.S. televisions that were on were watching the Charlie Brown Christmas special, most, one of the most popular shows ever, and um, all on broadcast TV. And it's got me thinking about this. How many people know the Christmas story? Right? Nowadays, it, I'm guessing you do here. Uh, that, that, this was rhetorical. I'm thinking big. How many people out there, right? You're all here. But how many people out there really know what it's all about? If all you go by is what you watch on TV or movies or what you see at the stores, would the idea that it's really about the birth of a baby, Jesus, would that even come into your mind? And I think for our, our culture, society, for a long time, everyone kind of heard, either they watched the Charlie Brown story or somewhere along the line, they learned that Christmas is really about the birth of Jesus, the Son of God. But I wonder if as we go forward, we're going to encounter more and more people who don't even know that story. I was talking to Missy, and she, someone she was working with, um, saw something in the tract, a, a, a tract about Jesus. The, this is what it's about. And, and so Missy had to go back and tell her the story. My wife has worked with, with teen moms in, in the past, and one of them saw a nativity set and didn't know what the nativity set was for. And she used that to talk about the story of the birth of, of Jesus. So we have this whole cultural celebration, which is fun and great and 
food, and I'm not against, you know, the fun stuff of Christmas. But I wonder if we as those who want to love and follow Jesus, we're going to get the challenge of actually sharing this story more and more with people who don't even know. Which is why I'm really excited that we're doing this one starry night thing. I think it is a way, not just of getting Christians to come up and show up at something, but maybe even getting the attention of people who don't know that Christmas is really about a a baby born in Bethlehem. And so I want to encourage you. I know we have a lot of people who are helping with it, and maybe you're kind of newer to the church or you didn't get signed up. That is very okay because I'm hoping that you'll come. And maybe, and here's more than maybe, I challenge you, pray this week, who can you invite? Who can you invite to come with you? Or who can you, uh, I know we have those little handout flyers. You know, what I, what I don't want you to do is the day after our one starry night, you think, oh, I could have invited so-and-so. You ever do that? I do that all the time. Like I could have, I think about it after the fact. Don't do that. This week, Lord, is there someone I, I can personally invite, go my neighbor. Um, this would be a great event for grandparents to bring their grandkids. Maybe that's the way it's going to happen, is, is the message of Christ has got to come through grandparents wanting to take their kids to some event with, with llamas. Are we going to have llamas at this thing? That's awesome, right? Who has llamas at, at an event? We will. So, um, yeah, and I think it will be an event because we are called to introduce people to the most amazing story ever. The story, not just of a baby who was born, but the coming son of God who changed everything, right? We date time after his birth. We do that for a reason. We're switching gears from Old to New Testament. So maybe you didn't realize the Bible has a part two, right? We're now in the sequel. And, and so our passage today transitions from Old to New Testament. And, and we're going to look at Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, which tells the story of the birth of Jesus. And in, in that story, in his account of the birth of Christ, Matthew is coming, he's coming hard after one clear point. He's going to make the case that Jesus is the Messiah that Jewish people had been waiting for. And as Missy explained to the kids, the prophets had told a Messiah would come. And now Matthew is making the case, even in his birth, Jesus is that one. And so he's laying out this. So here's what's interesting is is not all the gospel writers told the story of the birth of Christ. In fact, only Matthew and Luke do. Mark, he just goes right to Jesus getting out there, you know, starting to do miracles and all that. John, John goes a whole different route. I love John, but he's like, there was the Word, and the Word was in the beginning, and then the Word became flesh. His way of telling the Christmas story is, is deep. He's more philosophical. But Matthew and Luke are the two that give us the details, the story of what it would have been like. And I, I want to focus today on, on Matthew because Matthew is aiming at the Jewish people. Some other time, maybe I'll talk about Luke. Luke was, uh, Luke was actually the only non-Jewish writer of the Gospels. So he was aiming at kind of the, the world in general, the, the nations. Matthew was focused on, on those who knew already the Old Testament promises. And so he's going to focus on this. And 
just to give you one promise out of the, the Old Testament that pointed to a future Messiah. It is from uh, 2 Samuel 2. And this is what God says to King David a thousand years before Jesus, even, even before Isaiah. It says, I will be a father to him. So it's talking about David's son. Um, and it says, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. But my steadfast love will not depart from him. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So how could that be? How could God give to David an, an eternal kingdom? One that will last forever. And then knowing 500 years later, the last king of Judah was killed. And his sons were killed. And so, apparently, God's promise failed. But it didn't. That promise would be fulfilled in the coming Messiah. Um, David would, or, uh, there would be a son of David who would come and be the king of this new kingdom. The Jews have been waiting for this. They, they saw the promise. They, they believed it. And so they were waiting for messiahs. A messiah would be the king of God's people. But false messiahs had risen up. Um, in Josephus, one of the Jewish writers of the, the Roman era, talks about different ones. And one he mentions is, is a man named Theudas. And Theudas claimed to be a, a messiah. And he gathered a, a crowd, a group of people, followers, and at one point he claimed that he would, he would be able to part the Jordan River just like God had done the Red Sea under Moses and that they would safely travel between, you know, across the Jordan River. Didn't work out that way. They were cut down by a Roman army. Theudas was captured and executed. Um, other false messiahs came. Most of them came to a bad end, which made it clear that they weren't the messiah. But then think about Matthew. If Matthew's writing to people who don't yet know the story of Jesus, they, what would they know? Well, they knew he was executed by the Romans on a cross. How could one who was executed by Rome be the Messiah? So Matthew's writing his gospel to point, point to that truth. And he's got to overcome that skepticism that people would have. So he starts with, an interesting way. He starts with the genealogy. Right? Not probably how I would start making the, the argument that Jesus was the Messiah. So, beginning the book of the genealogy, the lineage of Jesus Christ. So here, here first of all, Christ is not Jesus' last name. He was not born to Joseph and Mary Christ. Christ is the Greek version, the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. Right there in the first line, he's saying, Jesus, the Messiah. And remember, the Messiah is the, the one who had been anointed by God to be king over God's people. So the Messiah literally means the anointed one. In the Old Testament times, they were anointed with oil, which was symbolic for being anointed with God's spirit as the ruler of God's people. To be, 
to lead God's people as a king, you had to have God's spirit upon you. So the, the anointed one with God's spirit was able to lead. So right there he's saying, okay, this is what I'm going to talk about. And he is a son of David and a son of Abraham. And then he gives the genealogy. And you could read through it all. We, we didn't have, oh, that would have been, I should have had Sarah read all those names. There are uh, 42 names. I think uh, Missy asked, you know, great, 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 great. How many greats? 42. And they actually, some scholars believe there might actually be names that kind of skips a few, like goes from grandfather to, there might actually be more than 42 generations because Matthew organizes these generations into six groups of seven. And so there are six, six sets of seven generations and so Jesus would be the beginning of the seventh seven. And the, the, the Hebrews love numerology and seven is the big number. So that's why it's 42 generations in between. Um, it's clear in this that he's both descended from Abraham, uh, David. And so he could fulfill that promise that I read earlier of David's throne lasting forever. He's also a son of Abraham. So this plan of God to bring a Messiah goes way back to the very beginning when he told Abraham, I will bless you and I will be with your people and an offspring of yours. I will bless your offspring and one of your offspring will be a blessing to all nations. Jesus could fulfill that by, by what he would do. He would come and this is part of God's plan to introduce, to get to know, and to open the door to his, to his kingdom to all peoples and all nations. So the other thing in the genealogy it shows that's, that's kind of surprising are, are the names of four women. And I don't want to get into the details of this. Uh, there's Tamar, there's Rahab, and you, we could do a study on each one of these women individually. But what's interesting is each one of them were, um, were not reputable. They were, they, they were marginalized, so they were either a prostitute or a foreigner. And yet, Matthew notes, they were included on the lineage of God's Messiah. See, right there, God was giving hints that included in his people would be those who had been previously left out. Those um, who maybe didn't fit in, who were looked down upon in culture, they would find a way. The poor in spirit would find their way to be a part of the kingdom of God. And so I said four women. There were actually five. The fifth woman mentioned is Mary. And so when we switch to, to verses 18 to 25, it talks about how Joseph was surprised to find that Mary was pregnant. They had been betrothed. And which means that it's kind of like uh, an engagement from even when you're young, but they were not yet fully married. Um, and it was a serious legal matter. So, and then suddenly Mary's pregnant that, that through the Holy Spirit, she, she's now with child. And at first Joseph is confused. And it's only by a dream, God enables him to understand that Mary had not been unfaithful that this is part of God's plan, and it's there to fulfill 
the Old Testament prophecy from Isaiah that the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel. And Emmanuel's Hebrew for God with us. So God will come amidst his people through being born of a virgin. And so Mary would have, she's included in those five women, right? Because people would have made assumptions about her character and about her actions by what she did. God's showing how things will work in his kingdom in a different way. Matthew's intent as he, he shares this though is to show Jesus is the Messiah that fulfills the scriptural prophecy of the virgin birth. If you read Luke, Luke also speaks about the virgin birth. And as I said, he's writing to a broader audience, not just the, the Hebrews. So when Luke talks about the virgin birth, he gives a different reason. He's born of a virgin so that he would be called a son of the Most High, son of God, to show that his fathership is ultimately comes from, from God the Father, only being a, adopted, in a sense, cared for by, by his human father, Joseph. When we get to chapter 2, another aspect of the Messiah would be where he was born. And of course, we know he's born in Bethlehem, but, but that actually is part of the prophecy. In Micah chapter uh, 5, it says... Then Bethlehem would come out a ruler of Judah, a ruler who would shepherd God's people. Bethlehem was a small town about six miles from Jerusalem. It's known as the town of David. It's where David had grown up as a boy before he became king. And it's where Samuel the prophet had found David and first anointed David with oil, to be the next king of Israel. And so now Bethlehem would be where a son of David, the new anointed one, would be born and be the next king. Another part of showing that he was the Messiah was that foreign emissaries came. For the birth of a king, other nations would send officials with gifts. And so God made arrangements they're called the Magoi, the Magi, in the, the gospel. Um, these would be court astrologers from far from the east. And when they, they came and to, 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 to pay homage to the birth of this king, they first approached Herod and the, the, the Jewish scribes. And when they were trying to say, all right, where would the Messiah be born? What do the Jewish scribes do? Well, they looked to the Scripture, right? So they looked, they said the prophecy of Micah, he'll be born in Bethlehem. So the Jews were people of the book. But the Magi were people of the stars. And so how did they know a king was coming? They had studied the stars. They were court astrologers. And so I find it fascinating that God chose to speak the language that, that would connect with them. And through the arrangement of stars, God would lead them to Jesus. God spoke a language they could understand, but his point was to lead them to the Savior. 
Could you say that happened for you? Did God speak to you in a way that led you to put your faith in Jesus? I, I, I could say God spoke my language before I was a Christian. Um, the things that drew me to first investigate Jesus and to come to him one was an all-night event. This is when I was a teenager and loved the idea of spending, staying up all night. Uh, my, my son just did that for a youth group event a few weeks back, and I'm like, oh my gosh, can't imagine that anymore. If I make it past 9 o'clock, I'm happy. Um, but anyways, an all-night event got me connected to the Ministry of Young Life, which is where I, I learned about Jesus. And then I'll even say another a, a particular science fiction book put a thought in my head that enabled me to understand something about God. God spoke my language so that ultimately I would come and put my faith in Christ. And he did that here with these magi. So when the magi came, they came with a general knowledge. The king was to be born. They go to, to the Roman-appointed king of the Jews known as Herod, Herod the Great. And Herod was a very brutal and violent ruler. He, he had a streak of paranoia to him. So they come to him not knowing the situation. They're just assuming that if a king was to be born, it would be born in Herod's palace. And it's then that the, the scribes let them know he'd be born in Bethlehem, which was not far away. But this would spur Herod's suspicion. Wait, I'm the king of the Jews. The Romans appointed me. And so when he heard about this, he did not like rivals to his opposition. In fact, Herod would put to death one of his own sons, thinking he was trying to overthrow him and take his kingship away. So Herod's response is to try to kill this new king to be born. It's known as the Massacre of the Innocents. When the children of Bethlehem were put to death by by Herod, soldiers. Um, but God was watching over his son and the, the couple. He gave a dream to Joseph. And Joseph then took his, his family into Egypt. What's interesting is that he's not the first Joseph to go to Egypt in the Bible. So what's happening and what Matthew is showing is that the life of Jesus even recapitulates, it, it almost like reenacts things that were already done by God's people in the past. So back in a long time before in Genesis, Joseph, the patriarch, ended up in power in Egypt. And during a famine, he shelters his brothers and sisters, his whole family, in Egypt to protect them. So that was Joseph, the patriarch, um, thousands of years before Jesus. And now Joseph, the husband of Mary, shelters his family, shelters the Holy One to be born, or the Holy One who was born, shelters them in Egypt, just as the, the, the family was, just as Israel was in the past. And so there's this recapitulation of the, the story of, of the, the people of Israel. And then the time... When the time was right, just as the time and right in the Old Testament, God led them out in the Exodus. So now when Herod had died, God led them back out of Egypt to Israel again. 
and there's a little drama about where they will move to. At first, they think they would go back to Nazareth to live, or I'm sorry, go back to Judah, where Bethlehem was. So they took refuge in Egypt. Do we have, do we have the map in the next, next thing? Oh, that's coming in. So, so Nazareth is way to the north of Jerusalem. And right next to Jerusalem is Bethlehem. So they assumed that they would go live in Bethlehem, Jerusalem area. But Herod's son Archelaus was ruling there. And God gives him another dream. He says, no, don't, don't go, go back up to Nazareth, way up in the north. So here's the challenge Matthew has. Remember, he's writing to people to convince them. Jesus is the Messiah uh, that, that they're waiting for. But if there's one thing people know, is the Messiah doesn't come from Galilee. And yet they also know this, Jesus of Nazareth, right? Jesus of Nazareth. So Nazareth is Galilee. How, how, how could this work? So this is an aside, but this last summer, I saw something that surprised me. Now I'll go back one slide. I saw uh, people wearing this jersey. You can go back. There we go. Yeah. So, so this will only relate to about like 10 of you out there, but... Uh, Thurman Munson was the great, one of the great New York Yankee players, catcher uh, in the 70s, I think, or so. And, but here's why it surprised me, is I grew up in Canton, Ohio. That's where uh, Munson was from. In fact, we have the Thurman Munson Airport and the Thurman Munson Stadium. And I'm like, I didn't quite make the connection. Like, why are people in New York talking about Thurman Munson? Because he was a great Yankees player. But he, he was uh, uh, ultimately from Canton. My dad would tell, told me the story, because that's where we grew up, um, is that he, he had died in a plane accident. And he had actually tried to teach himself to fly, or he was learning to fly and died in an accident um, in 1979. So, so all this to, to point out the fact that though I, I grew up in Canton, I'm now in upstate New York, right? So Jesus... Though he was born in Bethlehem, he would grow up in Nazareth. And so he would be known as a, a, a coming from Nazareth, as a Nazarene, rather than the city in which he was born. Just as Munson, I'm making this stretched out, just as Munson was born in Canton, but became known as a Yankees player. So th this is what Matthew is emphasizing, that he would be come from uh, Galilee, his ministry would start in Galilee, and he would not be, he would not start out, out in Bethlehem. And so, here's, here's the interesting line. It says, so that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. So everyone knew that the Messiah couldn't come from Galilee, and so how, how does this work? Well, this line, that he would be called a Nazarene. Nowhere in the Old Testament prophets is it said that the Messiah would come from Nazareth. In fact, there's no mention of, in all the Hebrew Bible, of the town of Nazareth. It may not even have been a town at the time of the Old Testament Bible. Nazareth is small. It, it, it probably was not an occupied location during Old Testament times. So what is Matthew talking about when he says there was a prophet said he would be called a Nazarene? How could that be? There's two theories. So the one theory 
is, it's a misspelling, and it's meant to be Nazarite. It's a Nazarite theory. So instead of Nazarene, they, they read that as Nazarite. Now, the Nazarite is not a, a town. It is a, a vow you would take, a special thing from the Bible, and you had two parts to it. One, you did not cut your hair if you were a Nazarite. And secondly, you did not drink alcohol. So there's one famous Nazarite in the Old Testament, and that is Samson. You know that story, long hair, when he cut his hair, he lost his strength. He was a Nazarite. He wasn't supposed to cut his hair. That was a special vow you could take in the Bible. And so the theory was that Matthew was saying that Jesus would be a Nazarite, not a Nazarene. Here's a big problem. Um, One, the Nazarite vow and the Messiah are not the same thing. They're not connected. Um, And the second was, we know Jesus wasn't a Nazarite because he drank wine. Like, it mentions that more than a few places. And he even turned water to wine, which you couldn't do if you were a a Nazarite. But it's this theory that kind of took hold. Have you ever noticed, like, pictures of Jesus? He's almost always has really long, sometimes luscious hair. You know, there's almost some silly pictures of him, like, like the super long hair that, that you have in the old times. It's because that that theory, that's why Jesus is often pictured with long hair. It's not accurate. There's no, no reason to think Jesus had to, taken the Nazarite vow and had especially long hair. It's theory number two that I'm going to say I think is the better one. And that that Matthew is using Hebrew wordplay. He's making a pun. So the Hebrew word netzer is the word for branch. Netzer is the word branch. And in Isaiah 11.1, it's speaking about the Messiah. It says, from out of the stump of, of Jesse will come a branch, a netzer. And so a netzer would, would be a little shoot coming out from a stump. Well, Jesse was the father of King David. And so to say the stump of Jesse is to talk about the, the line of King David seeming to have been cut off. Right? So you cut down a tree, the stump is left. So the, the line of King David, when the, the Babylonians conquered Jerusalem... In 585 BC, the, the line of David was whacked off, cut off. All that was left is a stump. What's Isaiah saying? Out of that stump will come a new branch. That will be God's work. That will be the Messiah. It will be a netzer. And so a netzerine was a little branch. So Matthew is playing off of that idea that the Messiah would be a, a netzer or a little branch, a netzerine. And it's the sound of the word. This would only, I'm, it's taking a lot of work to explain this, but if you were Hebrew and you knew the Hebrew language, you would get it as, as right away. You would, you would know these words. And it shows how Matthew is aiming his, his things at convincing someone of Jewish descent, that Jesus was the Messiah. That's the point of his gospel. That's what he wants people to see 
and understand as he talks about the birth of Jesus. This is the one. This is the little branch. I know he's only a baby right now, but this is the one we've been waiting for. This is the Nazarene, the Nazarene, the little branch who will be the king forever. So, my guess is that not many of us are Jewish. I know we have a few of Jewish descent here, but why should we care if Jesus was the Messiah? As we go through the Gospel of Matthew, we'll see that the good news that Jesus the Messiah would eventually go to all nations, not just to the Jewish people. So, at the end of Matthew, we start at the beginning, now at the end, Jesus says this, after the resurrection, Jesus came to his followers and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority. So Jesus, yes, he was the king of the Jewish people, now is the king of all peoples. He has been elevated, he has been raised so that all nations, tribes, and languages are under his authority. God has raised him up as the king of all who would come to him, all who would receive him. He's the king of the people of God. And now the people of God has been opened up to be not just the Jews, but to any who put their faith in Jesus Christ. Um, so what does it mean to be a part of God's people? What does it mean to be included is it automatic that if you are born, you are part of the people of God? I mean, aren't we all children of God? Yeah, I'm sure you've heard people kind of assume that. Well, in one sense, we're all children of God and that we're all created by God. All people are valued by God. We all have within us, even though it's broken, we're all part of the image of God. We're all human and we all have the dignity and, and, in a sense, rights given by God to all peoples regardless of, of how you, what you believe. But to become part of the people of God means you've taken this step. You have acknowledged that Jesus is the rightful king. To be in his kingdom, you have to accept him as your king. He says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? And so he, he's going to go on in Matthew to say the message would go forth to all peoples and languages so that anyone who's willing to say, Jesus is king and Lord of all. Jesus is my king. He is inviting us to be a part of his kingdom. His kingdom is so different than the way the kingdoms of this world. This world Someone comes to you with a sword and says, you will be part of my kingdom whether you like it or not. Jesus does not do that. Jesus comes to us with his word and says, here's my word. Here's the message. Here's my grace. Do you want to open the door to me? Do you want to be a part of my kingdom? He, it says, yet to all who receive him, to those who believe in his name, to those who honor him as their king, he gives the right to be called children of God. So the invitation is open. But then what does it mean to be part of that people of God? What are the characteristics? And so I want to read Matthew 28, the rest of this verse, right after the part I read, and 
and I want to think this question through it. What does this say about, about the characteristics of being part of the people of God? And Jesus says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the very end of the age. So, so he's telling his followers, the door is open for all people to become of the kingdom, but here's what's going to happen when someone becomes part of that people. So and there's four key words. Disciple. If you are part of the people of God, you are a disciple of Jesus Christ. You say, I have decided to follow Jesus, and I will go where he leads me. I will follow his teachings. I will live for him. That's being part of the people of God. Baptized. To, to, to the, the ritual symbol of joining God's people is baptism with water. And this is speaking of that, but it's also speaking more than that. Galatians 3 talks about how if you are baptized into Christ, you now belong to Christ. So baptism is this idea that we are his, that he lives in us. Galatians 2.20 says, I, I am, I, I'm no longer my own. Instead, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. That's the picture of baptism. That Christ is, is living in us and that we are his. That's what it means to be part of God's people. We've been baptized into Christ. Teaching. It says you'll teach them all the commandments, everything I need to know. To be part of God's people means I am growing in my understanding of knowledge of God, my love for God. I, I become like the Hebrews of old. I become a person of the book. It's why we spend so much time meditating and understanding because we want to know him. It, it said, one of the prophecies in Jeremiah says, my people, they will know me from the least to the greatest. It's not just a mechanical relationship. It is a personal knowledge, a living, living knowledge of God. That's what he wants. And then the last thing, and I love this promise in verse 20, and I will be with you always to the very end of the age. His presence will be with us no matter what we face in this life. The struggles and hardships, the, the challenges we face, we can know that he will not abandon us. We can know that even the, those times that we stumble and fall, we fail to live up to our, our part of being part of God's people, that he will not cast us away, but that he will hold on to us. He will lead us. He will forgive our sins. He will restore us in our heart. That, that in the darkest moments of your life, when you wonder if, if anyone gives a rip about you, you can know this. When you've made Jesus your king, he is with you always. I want to close just by, I want you to meditate before we go into our singing. I want you to meditate on that idea. What does it mean for you to be a part of the people of God? To be included in this great promise that the scriptures have been talking about. And so, I'm just going to allow a minute for, for weighing on that. Those, those, those four words, disciple, baptize, teaching, presence, meditate. What, what does it mean to you that you have been included in the people of God.